0: the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Finally we have the revelation of the figure who spoke with the booming voice of the trumpets. John looks in the direction of the voice And he sees seven golden lampstands. In considering this vision, the first place our minds ought to go is the book of Exodus, where the Israelites are commissioned to construct the tabernacle in order to worship Yahweh. It contained a lampstand with seven lamps on it to give light to the table of the bread of the presence, unleavened loaves representing the twelve tribes of God's people. It was representative of God's light on his people, and of course it was set up in the holy place The sanctuary that was central to God's dwelling with his people. But the other place our minds should take us is Zechariah 4. We referenced this earlier in the series. There Zechariah sees a vision of the seven-lamped lampstand that represents the need for God's people to be empowered by God's Spirit. These lampstands are identified in a few verses as the churches to which John is writing, which as we've said are probably symbolic of all churches everywhere. But these lampstands are not alone. There among the lampstands is a person, one like a Son of Man, that old title from the prophet Daniel, who described a figure who had the appearance of a man, but was also described as if he were God. This, of course, became the common way Jesus referred to himself during his ministry, and the Christian instantly recognizes his Lord. In the vision, he's also holding seven stars. This is Jesus, but he looks radically different than the last time John saw him. The fact that he's among the lamps is telling. Only a priest would be in the tabernacle, and then only to arrange the bread and trim the lamps. Indeed, Jesus seems to be dressed as a priest with the golden sash, an article of clothing most often used by the sons of Aaron. But it's a golden sash, perhaps indicating that he was the greatest of all priests, or perhaps that this is not just a priest, but a king. Jesus is our great high priest, offering himself as the sacrifice for our sins, ever living for his people. But he also is in charge of the lampstands. He can fuel their lamps' fires, or he can snuff them out. Jesus probably had few, if any, gray hairs during his earthly life, but Picking up the imagery of both the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, Jesus has white hair like snow. It represents his infinite wisdom and sagacity. His eyes are flames of fire. They are piercing and probing, seeing all things and knowing all things. In fact, they are judging all things. As Jesus tends the lamps of the churches, he is intimately familiar with all the details of their existence, every trial and every temptation, every suffering and every sin. His feet are like burnished bronze. He is immovable and unstoppable. He is strong and will not be upsought. His voice was loud and commanding and powerful. In his right hand were seven stars which we find out are also representative of the churches or specifically the angels of the churches. Jesus walks among his churches and Jesus holds them in his very hand. They are under his sovereign care and watchful eye. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. You may recall that the author of Hebrews describes the word of God as sharper than any two-edged sword. That is the image here. Jesus' words are the very words of God. His words could command the deaf to hear, the blind to see, the winds and waves to cease, the dead to rise, and sins to be forgiven. But his words could also be deadly. They were ready to do battle, and they could utterly slash to pieces anything Jesus so chose. His face shines like the sun in all its brilliance, a common attribute of that which was in the presence of God. I don't know what you think of when you think of Jesus. Perhaps it's the brown-haired, blue-eyed man of the paintings, or the sweet baby in the manger. But the Jesus John saw on the Lord's Day on the island of Patmos was as far away from those hallmark images as imaginable this Jesus is dangerous. This Jesus is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, immensely glorious, and utterly terrifying. And so John drops to his feet in terror. John, who identified himself as the one Jesus loved, is reminded of his compassionate and tender Savior with the words, fear not. Our culture especially in the younger generations, is quick to praise the attributes of gentleness and meekness in men, and rightly so. But these attributes are not very impressive when they stand alone. But when gentleness and meekness run in the veins of a man who can just as easily be a deadly warrior, they are very impressive indeed. Jesus' comforts to John are threefold. First, he is first and last. A title very similar to the one in verse 8 where the Lord God calls himself the Alpha and Omega. There we said it was indicative of the fact that God was before all creation and all of creation finds its purpose, its goal in God. Here Jesus is saying the same about himself. He is that sovereign God. Second, he is the living one. He reminds John that he died but was resurrected and is alive forever now, never to die again. John knows him. More importantly, he knows John. That leads to the third comfort. He has the keys to death and Hades. Hades was the abode of the dead in Jewish thought, Sheol in the Hebrew. It was where dead people went where they awaited judgment. To hold the keys would mean to have mastery and authority over these. Jesus was sovereign over death and its realms. Those he locked in were locked in, and those he freed are freed. In Jesus alone, the one who conquered death, is there any hope of escaping death's clutches? And the command again comes to John to write, The casual reader may be surprised to find out that verse 19 is a highly debated verse. Its meaning in plain English seems quite simple, but what it means for the book as a whole has driven important, but at times maddeningly complex debates. In the end, how one reads verse 19 will in many ways determine how one understands the entire book. I take the general view that everything that John is told to write down in his vision is a vision which has application both in his present and to his first readers, and which has applications for Christians in the future, even the far distant future like we are in. But important for us now is the amazing, mind-blowing picture we have here of Jesus. It should both support us and shock us, encourage us and intimidate us. Every church, and by extension every Christian, is in Christ's hand, under his penetrating and all-knowing gaze, just inches from the two-edged sword protruding from his mouth. A Jesus profoundly worthy of our worship indeed. Until next time.